0: This session is entitled Mangled Manifestations. And in this session, we'll be looking at some of the more dramatic, spectacular things of the Word of Faith movement and the charismatic movement in general, uh, tongues and how God does and does not speak to us, people who claim they've been to heaven, things like that. Uh, As we get going here, let me define a couple of terms for us. There is a debate within Christianity today as to whether or not the apostolic gifts or the sign gifts are still in operation today. There is a position known as uh, continuism, and if you are a continuist or a continuationist, that means that you believe that all of the spiritual gifts, including the apostolic gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing, these gifts are still operative in the church Today, And there's another position known as cessationism. And before I define cessationism for you, let me show you a video clip that, uh, from Beth Moore and so you can learn what cessationism is not. She defines it wrongly. But watch this from Beth Moore.
1: I want to be people of the Word of God. And so we got a lot of things going in our current religious culture. And we've got two extremes I want to address tonight so that we can understand them. First of all, I want you to look over to this side. We have the religious culture of the extreme that I'm going to call cessationism. Now, I'm making up a word with that ism. But you know the word cessation. And it is the word that comes from cease. And this particular extreme teaching in the body of Christ says, all miracles have ceased. For all practical purposes, God no longer works miracles in our day.
0: Well, it would behoove Beth Moore before she defines, before she teaches on something that she would at least know how to define it. And she defines cessationism wrongly. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles today. If we were to say that, then we would have to say that God is no longer saving people today, because being saved is the greatest miracle of all, not uh, being healed physically or anything like that. Cessationism is not the belief that God is no longer doing miracles, nor is cessationism the belief that none of the, none of the uh, uh, spiritual gifts are in operation today. Cessationism is simply the belief that only the apostolic gifts have ceased. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing. All of the other gifts, the more, more normative gifts, the service gifts, if you will, like mercy, teaching, administration, exhortation, giving, hospitality, discernment, All of these spiritual gifts are still very much in operation today, but only the apostolic gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and physical healing have ceased. So it would behoove Beth Moore before she teaches on something, at least know how to define it. And I I do want to say a couple of words about Beth Moore. Beth Moore is not word of faith per se, but uh, her trajectory in the last ten years has been really on a, a downward slope, and, and I, think it, uh, I think it's needful to say something about Beth Moore. There's a number of problems with Beth Moore. Number one, Beth Moore is very ecumenical, and she teaches, for example, that Roman Catholics are Christians. Roman Catholicism is not under the umbrella of historical Christianity, not at all. It is a theological cult and yet she teaches that Roman Catholics are part of the church. Not only does she teach that, but she claims that God spoke to her and God gave her a vision of the church that includes Roman Catholicism. So that is a, that's a huge red flag. Beth Moore has poor hermeneutics. She's very prone to take promises that God made to individuals, or to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and make a blanket application for us today. But you can't do that. That's bad hermeneutics. She takes Scripture out of context regularly. Regularly takes Scripture out of context. Mystical and extra-biblical divine revelation. It is not uncommon to hear Beth Moore say that God speaks to her directly, in a quotable sense, outside of Scripture. Huge, huge red flag. And also, Beth Moore has known associations with false teachers. Uh, And as evidence of this, watch this video clip from 2014 as Beth Moore sits with Word, Faith, Prosperity preacher, Joyce Meyer.
1: I was astonished. When I came um, to the ministry today, Joyce, um, what God has used you to do and the magnitude of it—I guess perhaps the place that you get the most peace is that you know no human being could possibly have come up with it. You have to know God is with you because nobody could have done it. No, no. And I thought I asked the Lord this morning in my hotel room. I said, "You know what? I want—I want to be a blessing to Joyce." I said, "I know." she 's going to be a blessing to me, but how could I bless her lord she what uh, what could I do she you've blessed her in such uh, magnificent ways, and they, what could she possibly um, want or need from somebody like me and you know I thought to myself i i don 't have uh, much to offer you but this joyce Meyer i I offer you my respect. Thank you. I offer you my esteem. And I say to you, you are a mighty, mighty woman of God. And you have run and are running your race well. That Thank you. I can bring you today. That I have to give.
0: Joyce Meyer is Word of Faith Prosperity Preacher. She teaches all of the standard Word of Faith doctrines, positive confession, little God, spiritual death of Jesus, guaranteed healing, guaranteed prosperity. She has endorsed Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland. She preaches at uh, Joel Osteen's church quite regularly. She's a false teacher. And Beth Moore just lavishes praise on her. Beth Moore every Wednesday is on James Robison's program. James Robison is Word of Faith. James Robinson has had Kenneth Copeland uh, on his program, Creflo Dollar on his program, uh, Father Jonathan Morris, Catholic, and Glenn Beck. And James Robinson, and I've got this on video, calls Glenn Beck his brother in Christ. Glenn Beck is a New Age Mormon, a Mormon, and yet... James Robinson calls him his brother in Christ, and Beth Moore is on James Robinson's program every Wednesday. James Robinson is a false teacher, so what does that say about Beth Moore regularly associates with him? The Bible is not unclear, dear ones, about how we are to deal with false teachers. Second John, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? The gospel, sound doctrine. Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. There are many other verses we could cite as well. Uh, Beth Moore is a dangerous teacher. Uh, she, is not, she is not one that can be trusted to be a faithful expositor of God's Word at all. So, uh, ladies, don't despair. Uh, I can recommend to you a, a good female Bible teacher. Her name is Susan Heck. Susan's husband is Doug Heck and Doug was our pastor, Kathy and my pastor, when we lived in Oklahoma up until about a year or so ago. And um, uh great, great church. Doug's a great pastor and Susan writes books and Bible studies for ladies. And unlike Joyce Meyer and unlike Beth Moore, Susan teaches only ladies. She stays within the biblical parameters of the roles of a woman, and she teaches only ladies. She does not teach men like Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore do. Susan has 24 books of the Bible committed to memory. Not verses, not chapters, but books. And uh, so she, she really knows her stuff. Very, very sound. Her website, withthemaster.com. Withthemaster.com. So uh, if you've ever done a Joyce Meyer or even a Beth Moore Bible study... Ladies, and then you do one of Susan Heck's Bible studies, it'll be like going from potted meat to filet mignon. Okay, so big difference. But uh, Susan Heck is, is one you can, uh, you can trust. So good, good stuff. All right. Now, I want us to return to our discussion of cessationism versus continuism. And that debate is an important debate okay, but it is not in and of itself salvific. In other words, genuine Christians can come down on different sides of this debate and still have fellowship in Christ. So it's not a matter of whether or not you're saved in and of itself. However, it is a very important issue because where you come down on that issue will have a lot of ripple effects in how you view a number of other issues as well, especially dealing with the sufficiency of Scripture. So um, it's, not a, it's not a question in and of itself whether or not you're a Christian, but it is very, very important. So I encourage you to know what you believe and to know why you believe it. Now I want to begin with a little quiz, a little, little pop quiz. Now if you've seen my presentations at the Strange Fire Conference, don't, uh, don't uh, blurt out the, the answer because I did this at Strange Fire too, but a little quiz. Which theological group does the following? Okay, I'm going to list some behaviors here, and when you look at these, just tell me what group you automatically think of. First group that comes to mind, erratic jerking and shaking, uncontrollable laughter, they get slain in the spirit, they prophesy, they have physical healings, and they speak in tongues. Which group do you automatically think of? Charismatic? Pentecostal? Hindus? Does that surprise you? There's a subset within Hinduism known as Kundalini. And you can take video clips of Hindu Kundalini and you can put them side by side, video clips of Charismatics, and you cannot tell the difference. They are absolutely indistinguishable. People in Hindu kundalini do the exact same things that charismatics do. They jerk, they shake, they have uncontrollable laughter, what the charismatics call Holy Ghost laughter. They get slain in the spirit. Uh, A a Hindu uh, shaman will touch somebody on the head and they'll fall backwards. Looks just like being slain in the spirit. They prophesy. They even have some reported physical healings and they speak in tongues and they do it just as convincingly as any charismatic. You literally cannot tell the difference. So what does that tell us? That tells us that just because someone is exhibiting one or more of these behaviors is not necessarily an indication that that ability is coming from God. Pagans do it too. Pagans do it too. And charismatics, basically, they they base their theology off of their experiences. Well, I know it must be real because I've experienced this. I've experienced tongues. Doesn't matter. Hindus have experienced it too. And not just Hindus, some Mormons speak in tongues. Some Muslims speak in tongues, if you can believe that. Lots of pagan religions speak in tongues. So, dear friends, no matter how real an experience may seem to us, if that experience does not plumb with the Word of God, then it's illegitimate. We have exceeded biblical parameters. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six, do not exceed what is written. We cannot interpret the Bible by what we experience. We've got to interpret our experiences by the Bible. We must interpret our experiences by the Bible. Okay, so I want us to talk about tongues now. And I've got a few items here dealing with tongues just kind of in a general nature. And so we're going to go through these, this list, kind of flesh this gift out a little bit because there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding on tongues. Number one, tongues are not unique to Christianity. Just talked about that. Uh, a number of pagan religions speak in tongues, and they do it just as convincingly as any charismatic professing believer Tongues can be practiced in an ignorant, ungodly way. Tongues can be practiced in such a way that it brings attention to the person speaking in tongues rather than glorifying Christ and edifying the church. And this is what was going on in the church in Corinth. Before the Corinthians ever heard the gospel, they were in pagan idolatry, pagan religion. And as part of their pagan religion they spoke in their pagan worship, they spoke in ecstatic, unintelligible gibberish. They whipped themselves up into emotional frenzies and they spoke in this gibberish. That was part of their pagan worship. But then after the apostle Paul came to Corinth, preached the gospel, a number of these people were saved. Paul spent about a year and a half with them trying to grow them up, mature them in their relationship with Christ. Church was born there. Paul felt like They had reached a level of spiritual maturity sufficient enough to where they could carry things on in his absence. So after about a year and a half, Paul left. Corinth went to other destinations to preach the gospel. But Paul may have left a little bit too soon because he got a letter from a lady back in Corinth named Chloe. And in this letter, Chloe informed the Apostle Paul that things had gone awry in the church in Corinth, that basically the the wheels had come off. And what was going on is that some of these immature believers were wanting to still, they were holding on to some of the vestiges of their pagan worship before they heard the gospel. They were trying to incorporate it into the church and it was just causing all kinds of chaos. And there was a group of people within that church that had become very arrogant in their exercise of the spiritual gifts. And it had almost become a contest between them as to who could prove themselves to be the most spiritual. Well, I'm I'm more spiritual than you are because I speak in tongues more than you do. I have the gift of healing more strongly than you do. Uh, look at me. Look how, look how spiritual I am. And it all, because of this arrogance and abuse of the gifts, there was all kinds of sin and immorality just rampant in the church, and it just about destroyed the church from the inside out. The church of Corinth was just a disaster. And I'm kind of amused sometimes as I ride around the country, drive around, and I see uh, churches that name themselves Corinth. You know, I see a Corinth Baptist church. You know, (laughs) that would be the last name I would want for my church. They had all kinds of stuff going on in that church. Talk about getting off, started off on the wrong foot. So there was all kinds of stuff going on in that church. And this is part of the problem. They were abusing the gifts for spiritual aggrandizement. If done in public, in corporate worship, an interpreter must always be present, and he must always interpret. The Apostle Paul says that tongues, if they are done, must be done by two, or at the most three, each in turn, Paul says, and let one interpret. Paul says if there is no one there to interpret, then let him remain silent. So if there is no interpretation given, that is not of God, period, not of God. It is false that all believers should speak in tongues. Some churches teach that if you are saved, your salvation will be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, well, then you're probably not saved. But that is patently unbiblical. The Apostle Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, all are not uh, apostles, are they? He says, all do not teach, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? And clearly, the implied answer to these rhetorical questions is no. No, they don't. So it's patently unbiblical to teach that if you are saved, you must speak in tongues. It's just patently unbiblical. And think about it this way. We don't, we don't say that about any of the other spiritual gifts. You know, we, we don't say, if, if you don't have the gift of teaching, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the gift of Administration, you're not a Christian. So why do we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? Does that make any sense? Every Christian does not have every spiritual gift. That's the whole point of the gifts. The Holy Spirit distributes the spiritual gifts among the body as he wills to do, First Corinthians chapter 12. And every Christian does not have every spiritual gift. It's the whole point of the gifts. So, why do we make an exception for the gift of tongues? We don't do that for any of the other gifts. Tongues were for a sign of judgment. Tongues were for a sign of judgment. This is something I think the vast majority of people miss. Uh, There's only one place in the New Testament that gives a reason, a function for the gift of tongues, and that's in 1 Corinthians 14 20 through 22. The Apostle Paul says that tongues were for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that when an unbeliever sees you speaking in tongues, they will just be so impressed by that ability that they will just have to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord? Not at all. And we know that that's not what he meant because here Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28. Well, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 28? Judgment. Judgment. One of the signs that God was bringing judgment to Old Testament Israel is that one day the Jews would wake up and they would look around and in their midst would be a group of people speaking a foreign language, not unintelligible gibberish, but a foreign language, whether it's Babylonian, Assyrian, or what have you. And when the Jews saw that, they knew then, uh-oh, God's about to bring the hammer down. God's bringing judgment. And this is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22. Tongues were a sign of judgment. When the Hebrews one day would wake up in the morning and there would be a group of people in their midst speaking a foreign language, then they knew that God was bringing judgment. This is what the Apostle Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 22 when he gave a reason for the gift of tongues. They were for a sign of to unbelievers. Uh, and it was not assigned to unbelievers in the sense that if they saw you speaking in tongues, then they will want to adopt Christianity. Not at all, because we we're going to use that logic. We would have to say that uh, people would, uh, would uh, adopt Islam when they see Muslims speaking in tongues, or, or uh, adopt Hinduism when they see Hindus speaking in tongues. So that's, uh, that's not at all what was going on. Tongues were for a sign of judgment. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit fell, these men began to speak in tongues, in languages, different languages. In fact, that's the next point. Uh, Tongues were known languages, not unintelligible gibberish, known languages. But when... When the Holy Spirit fell, day of Pentecost, and these men began to speak in different languages, and the languages are listed there in Acts chapter 2. There's a list of them. There's like 16, 17 different languages that are listed there. When that happened, that was a sign that God's salvific gaze, if you will, was shifting away from the Jews towards the Gentiles. God was bringing Israel into judgment And even as we speak right now, Israel is under the judgment of God. Not in a militaristic sense, not in a political sense, but in a salvific sense. God has brought a partial hardening to the nation of Israel. He was judging them for their unbelief. They crucified their Messiah. And so God was bringing judgment to them. And so God's gaze of salvation, salvific gaze, was shifting away from Israel, away from the Jews to the Gentiles. And even today, Israel remains under the judgment of God. I'm not saying that we should not support Israel. We should support Israel. But in a salvific sense, Israel is under the judgment of God. Now one day, God's salvific gaze will return to Israel. Romans chapter 11, I think pretty clear about that in a big way. God will return. But for right now, Israel in a spiritual, salvific sense is under the judgment of God. And that's what the gift of tongues, the gift of language is signified And tongues were known languages, not unintelligible gibberish. Now, sometimes when we read this, it's a little difficult for us to kind of wrap our minds around what this gift would have looked like. But I want to try to give you a demonstration of what tongues would have looked like um, 2,000 years ago almost. So let's pretend like we are at uh, whatever. We're at, at... Grace Church in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 55. Okay, we're at Grace Church in Jerusalem. The year is A.D. 55, and all of the apostolic gifts are still in operation, including the gift of tongues. I want to show you what the gift of tongues would have looked like almost 2,000 years ago. So, Richard, can I get you to stand up for just a second, brother? Okay, so we're in Jerusalem. You're A.D. 55, The Holy Spirit of God gives Richard the gift of languages, and all of a sudden Richard is given a message by God, and he communicates that message in Farsi. Do you speak Farsi? No. Okay. So Richard all of a sudden is speaking a message from God in fluent Farsi, even though he doesn't know Farsi. Now if I have the gift of interpretation of tongues, which is a separate gift from the gift of tongues... A lot of people don't realize that. Separate gift. If I have the gift of interpretation of tongues or interpretation of languages, I can translate what Richard said in Farsi even though I don't know a word of Farsi either. And then Richard would sit down. And remember, Paul said it must be done by two or at the most three, each in turn. Okay, so after Richard sits down, uh, Aaron. Can I get you to stand up just for a second, brother? All right, so Aaron stands up, and God gives Aaron... The gift of languages, and Aaron starts speaking fluent Zulu. Do you speak Zulu? So he's speaking fluent Zulu, even though he doesn't know Zulu. And if I have the gift of interpretation of languages, I can translate what Aaron is speaking in Zulu, even though I don't speak Zulu either. And then Aaron would sit down. And so it would go. Now I ask you, Have you ever seen anything like that in a charismatic church anywhere? Nope. You sure haven't. And you know what? You never will. But that is what the gift of languages would have looked like 2,000 years ago. But you never see anything like that in a charismatic church. What do you see? Well, you see something a little bit more like the following. This from Sid Roth.
2: And if you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, up. Raise your hands to the Holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it. I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But they're the first words coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your ribs, you'd do it faster.
0: Can't you just see the Apostle Paul doing something like this, saying something like this? faster, faster. If I had a dagger in your side, you could do it faster than that. Every biblical parameter there is on the gift of tongues, they just broke. And what does that do to glorify Christ or edify His church? Nothing. Who does that bring attention to? Themselves. Themselves. That's not of God. That's of the flesh. And Yet this, what you just saw, that is mainstream in charismatic churches. That's what you see in charismatic churches. And yet this is exactly the kind of thing you would have seen in the church in Corinth. And it was pagan. It was pagan. Now, if you ask a charismatic today, why do you speak in tongues? You will not hear them say, oh, well, I speak in tongues because that's a sign of God's judgment on unbelieving Israel. You would not hear that, not in a million years. What would you hear? Well, you'd hear something like this. The
2: reason the devil, and that's who it is, does not want you to speak in supernatural languages is because this is the doorway into all of the supernatural. Listen to this. No satanic resistance. Why do I say that? The devil doesn't understand what you're saying. He can't resist you, you got it?
0: So you ask a charismatic why you speak in tongues, and that's in all likelihood that's probably what you're going to hear. They'll say, well, when you speak in tongues, you're speaking with the tongues of angels and when you speak with the tongues of angels, Satan can't understand what you're saying. So it's like we're, we're talking in code and so you, you kind of you slip one in under old Lucifer there. Does that make any sense? So if you speak with the tongues of angels, Satan can't understand what you're saying? What is Satan? He's an angel? He's a fallen angel, but he's an angel. So if you want to speak in some language that Satan doesn't understand, the tongues of angels would be the last language I would recommend you talking in. Does that make any sense at all? No. No, it doesn't make any sense. So where do they get this, tongues of angels? Well, they get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a tinkling, clanging cymbal." That's where they get this from. But that is not at all what Paul was talking about. He was not talking about some heavenly language that you pray in that Satan doesn't understand. Not at all. Paul was using hyperbole. He was exaggerating to make a point. How do we know that he was exaggerating to make a point? Well we know he was exaggerating to make a point by reading the next couple of verses. Paul continues, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Did Paul know all mysteries? No. Did he have all knowledge? No. Because he says right here in the same context we see through a glass dimly, right? Paul says, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, had Paul ever rearranged the topography of Israel? No. But do not have love? I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, had the Apostle Paul done this? No. And if I surrender my body to be burned, had Paul surrendered his body to be burned? No. But do not have love? It profits me nothing. He was exaggerating to make a point. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, look Corinthians, even if I knew all mysteries, if I had all knowledge, even if I could move mountains, even if I could speak with the tongues of angels, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul was correcting these people. He was slam dunking them. He was taking these folks out to the woodshed. Paul was saying to the Corinthians, look, you think you're all that spiritual. You think you're so smart. You think you're so super spiritual. It doesn't matter what you can do. It doesn't matter what you think you know. If your, if your actions and your knowledge is not undergirded by love, and I'm not talking about some touchy-feely, sappy, emotional kumbaya kind of love, a godly love, a love that is grounded in biblical doctrine. It profits me nothing. And that's what he was saying to Corinthians. It profits you nothing, Corinthians, and, dear ones, it profits us nothing. It does not matter what we know. It does not matter what we can do. If what we do and what we know is not grounded upon a solid biblical love, then it profits us nothing. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. It has nothing to do with some heavenly, angelic language that Satan can't understand or decipher. Not at all. Not at all. And you ask a lot of charismatics today, too, well, why do you speak in tongues? And they'll say, well, you know, an angelic language, Satan can't understand. But a lot of people, a lot of charismatics will also say, well, I use this in my own private prayer time. And I've talked to a lot of charismatics who say they would never speak in tongues in church, but they just do it in their own private prayer closet. They do it when they go home as part of their private devotional, private worship. Well, let me ask you this, for what reason does the Holy Spirit of God give spiritual gifts? Why do do we have spiritual gifts, generally speaking, what are they for? To build up the church, build up the body, right? Edification of the church. They are not for our own private, personal use. They're not for our own private use. If you have the gift of mercy, do you go into your private prayer closet and show yourself mercy? No, that wouldn't make any sense, would it? So if, if you have the gift of teaching, do you just teach yourself? If you have the gift of administration, do you administrate yourself? No. You're to be using this, these gifts regularly in the body for the building up of the saints. So why would we carve out an exception for the gift of tongues? Why would we say, okay, for all these other gifts, yeah, we're going to use those in the body for the edification of the church, but for this gift, this one gift, the gift of tongues... No, we're going to carve out an exception for that, and I'm going to use that one for myself. No. That's bad hermeneutics. That's not why we have spiritual gifts. It's not why we have spiritual gifts. Now, a very important question to the issue of continuism versus cessationism is this question. What is an apostle? Are there apostles today? Well, what is an apostle? It's a... We have to be careful here a little bit because the Greek word apostolos literally means sent one, one who is sent. That's really all the word means. But there are two different kinds of apostles. There are the apostles of Christ, and we refer to the apostles of Christ. We're talking about the office of the apostle, and we denote that in English with a capital A, the office of apostle. But then there are apostles of the church, and those are just in a more general sense the ones that the church sends out to preach, to be an evangelist, to be a missionary. And so we call these, we refer to these as uh, apostles with a little a. We see this with a couple of other terms in the New Testament as well. Elder. Elder could refer simply to an older man, or it could refer to the office of an elder. Or a deacon could simply refer to a servant in a very general sense, or it could refer to the office of the deaconate. So the apostles are the same way. There's a, the office of the, being an apostle, apostle of Christ, and then there's just an apostle of the church in very general term. So the question is, are there apostles, capital A Apostles today? Well, if you wanted to be an apostle of Christ, you had to meet three requirements. Number one, you had to be a first-person eyewitness of Jesus Christ. You had to see Jesus Christ resurrected with your own eyes. Dear friends, there are no more of those people around. They are all long dead. Okay? Number two, you had to be directly appointed by Christ to be an apostle. You didn't run a campaign. Okay? You didn't print up signs saying, uh, Vote for me, your next apostle. You had to be appointed by Christ to be an apostle. And number three... You had to have the ability to perform the signs and wonders of an apostle. Heal the sick instantaneously. Raise the dead to do signs and wonders of the apostles. And dear friends, if you wanted to be an apostle of Christ, you had to meet all three requirements. Not one, not two, all three. And dear friends, there is not a person alive on the face of the earth today who meets even one of these requirements, much less all three of them. There are no more apostles today. None. No more apostles today. Now, that has profound implications for the charismatic movement. If there are no more apostles today, how are there still apostolic gifts today? And think about it this way, too. If all of the apostolic gifts, the signed gifts, are still in operation today, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, and what's the other one? Healing, physical healing. Then that gift is in operation today. Well, I pose this question. You can go into any real church anywhere on the planet, a Bible believing, Bible preaching church, and you know what you're gonna find? You're gonna find people with a gift of mercy. You're gonna find people with a gift of teaching. You're gonna find people with a gift of administration. Where's a person with a gift of healing? Where's that guy? Where's the person who is using that gift regularly in the body for the building up of the church? Where's that person? Where's the person who can go up to a sick person at will and instantly, verifiably heal that person? And I'm not talking about some psychosomatic healing. I'm not talking about somebody saying, oh, yeah, well, uh, ugh. I think my right shoulder is feeling a little better. That birth site is a little looser today. No, I'm talking about a real healing. I'm talking about an amputee growing a new limb. I'm talking about a Down syndrome child being restored. Where's that guy? I would challenge anybody to show me even one person anywhere on the planet that has that gift. Show me one. Show me one. You show me one person anywhere on this blue marble, third rock from the sun, you show me one person who has that gift of healing, I will eat my crutch. That person doesn't exist. Does not exist. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do I believe that God still heals people today? Yes. Yes I do. Physically. God does physically still heal people today, but only when it is His sovereign will to do so. But is that the same thing as the apostolic gift of healing? No, it's not. Apples and oranges, two totally different things. When God heals somebody today, He just just does it. But nobody today has the gift of healing like people have the gift of teaching, like people have the gift of mercy. Nobody today has the gift of healing. And if somebody did, if Benny Hinn, if Benny Hinn had the gift of healing, why is he not in the hospitals? Why does he not go to St. Jude, clear that place out, heal those sick kids dying of cancer? Why doesn't he do that? Because he doesn't have the gift of healing anymore than anybody else does. Nobody does. And I've yet to have a, a charismatic, give a, a rational answer to that question. Where's the person with the gift of healing? Where's the person with the gift of feeling? All right, I want us to talk briefly about what's called the cascade argument for cessationism. Uh, I did not come up with this term. Dr. Sam Waldron did. Uh, he wrote a book on it, and I think it's a very interesting insight. Uh, this cascade argument for cessationism, and it goes like this. If there are no more apostles today, and there are not, okay, we've established that, no more apostles today. If there are no more apostles today, neither are there any more prophets today. Now, how can we say that? Well, we can say that because the apostles and the prophets, prophets both operated under the same authority. Divine revelation, God speaking to them directly, and they communicated those messages from God, word for word, exact. They operated under the same authority. They were held to the same standard. So if there are no more apostles today, there are no more prophets today. And remember, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, held to the same standard. Now if there are no more prophets today, neither are there any more tongue speakers today. How can we make that leap? Well, the gift of tongues, when you think about it, remember what we saw demonstrated here? One person standing up, direct message from God, he communicated that message in a language he did not know, but it was exact message, and then it would go to the next person. That is God speaking to a person, and that message is communicated with 100% accuracy in in a foreign language. So if there are no more tongue speakers, the gift of tongues, the genuine gift of tongues, rises to the same authoritative level as that of the prophets, as that of the apostles. Because it's God speaking through a person, communicating a message directly with 100% accuracy. So all three, apostles, prophets, and tongue speakers, it was all operating under the exact same authority. So if there are no more tongue speakers today, neither are there any more miracle workers today. Because the gift of signs, miracles, was revelatory in nature, revealing new information that was not already recorded in uh, written scripture. And so if there are no more apostles today, there are no more prophets. If there are no more prophets today, there are no more tongue speakers. If there are no more tongue speakers today, neither are there any more miracle workers. And I don't know where along this chain, this cascade, you would break it. One follows the other. I think the argument for cessationism theologically, biblically, historically is overwhelming. Dear friends, if you believe that all of the apostolic gifts are still in operation, then you've got a big problem with the sufficiency of Scripture. Big, big problem. Sufficiency of Scripture is gone. If you take the charismatic position, gone. Spectacular claims. Uh, just briefly, wanna, all of the Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation, IHOB. they all have this emphasis on signs and wonders. Watch these couple of clips from Bill Johnson, pastor of Redding Church, uh, excuse me, pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California. Watch this from Bill Johnson.
3: And uh, it would be about 15 or maybe 14 years ago, somewhere in that area, 14 years ago probably, the feathers started disappearing and falling in meetings. And then they started falling in our homes and in restaurants and things like that, just unusual things, you know. There are signs that make you wonder. There, are, there are, people say, "Where's that in the Bible?" Well, he said he'd cover you with his feathers.
0: Just for the record, God does not literally have feathers. That's anthropomorphic language. That's, but that's a sign and wonder. Angel feathers falling out of the sky. Watch this from Bill Johnson.
3: I have an acquaintances with the Lord now, but sitting on a plane gold just started manifesting literally just started falling people could see it falling on him and the stewardess came over stunned she ended up getting saved people all around him started getting saved because just he's just sitting there and the lord would appear upon him and people would see it and they would get saved just this gold would start manifesting start falling
0: Okay, so he claims that on an airplane somewhere, gold dust, the Shekinah glory, you know, like we saw earlier in the earlier session, uh, gold dust starts falling out of the whatever in the airplane, and the stewardess sees it, and she sees the gold dust, and she gets saved. Exactly how did that happen? Now, I'm not talking about the gold dust. How did she get saved? By seeing gold dust? Where, where's the gospel? Where's the preaching of sin? Where's the preaching of repentance? Where's the godly sorrow? She got saved because she saw some gold dust in the air? Lying, signs, and wonders. Lying, signs, and wonders. Bill Johnson is a liar. I want us now to talk about these people who claim they've been to heaven. For a lot of people, it seems that heaven just can't Wait. There's a lot of heavenly tourists out there. People who claim they've been to heaven and they want to tell you all about it. Big business nowadays. Few of the more popular heavenly tourists. Jesse Duplantis says that he went to heaven on a cable car. Blonde haired angel on the cable car traveling along with him. So, Jesse Duplantis went to heaven on a cable car. Roberts Learden went to heaven, he claims. He wrote a book entitled God's Generals. And uh, shortly after he claimed, made this claim of going to heaven, it came out public knowledge that Robert and some practicing homosexual. Don Piper. Don Piper says he spent 90 minutes in heaven. Now, what makes Don Piper a little bit different is Don Piper's not word of faith. He's not even charismatic, at least not theoretically. He's Baptist. He's a Baptist. And he says that he went and spent 90 minutes in heaven. He had a car accident southeast Texas. Actually, not too terribly far from here. had a car accident in 1989, and upon impact on this bridge, said he died and he went to heaven, and he spent an hour and a half in heaven. Don Piper goes around to a lot of churches today talking about his story of going to heaven. A lot of the churches he goes to are Baptists, Southern Baptists. Colton Burpo says he went to heaven. Four-year-old boy oh, had a... Medical emergency of sorts, it wasn't nearly as serious as they let on because I happened to have talked to a nurse who was at the hospital that Colton Burpo was being treated in, and she told me she knows the Burpos, and Colton was nowhere near death. It was not that serious. But at any rate, uh, Colton Burpo says that when he was in the hospital, he went to heaven, and he wrote a book entitled Heaven is for Real. or He and his father wrote a book. His father really wrote it. Heaven is for Real. I take offense at the title of that book. I don't need a four-year-old kid to tell me that heaven is for real. The Bible already tells me that. So uh, thanks anyway, but got it. Bill Weiss. Bill Weiss didn't go to heaven. He says he went to hell. He spent 23 minutes in hell. Now what makes Bill Weiss's story a bit odd is that he says he was already a Christian and Jesus personally took him to hell as a believer why would Jesus take somebody to the very place from which he died to save them? Mary Baxter, she's been to both places. She's been to heaven and to hell. I to tell you all about both of them. Divine revelation of heaven, divine revelation of hell. Todd Bentley. Todd Bentley undoubtedly is one of the more disturbed, and I would say, sorry, I'm just deranged of the word faith preachers. He is absolutely I, honestly, I think Todd Bentley is demonic i 've been very close to him, and I, I, I think he, I think the guy's, i think he 's demon possessed but Todd Bentley says that he went to heaven he said he shot up through he was preaching one night, and God told him to step into a column of fire, he stepped into the column of fire, shot up through the ceiling, found himself in heaven, laying down on an operating table i 'm not real sure why heaven would have a need for an operating table, but apparently they 've got one up there. And laying down on an operating table, and there were four angels dressed in gleaming white, two on each side. They proceeded to strap him down, feet and hands, so he couldn't move, and then they cut him open with a miter saw. You can't make this stuff up, dear friends. There are problems worth pondering with all of these accounts. There are inter contradictions. In other words, they contradict one another. And if they contradict one another, then logically they cannot all be true, right? That's common sense. There are intra-contradictions. In other words, not only do they contradict one another, oftentimes they even contradict themselves. There are biblical problems with these accounts, theological problems with these accounts, and we will say something briefly about their possible motives. I want to show you some examples of the inter-contradictions, how they contradict one another. Don Piper, 90 Minutes in Heaven, says that he went to heaven... But he reports in in heaven that people have no wings. People do not have wings in heaven, contrary to what the cartoons show you. Colton Burpo, however, says people in heaven do have wings. Well, somebody's not telling the truth. Don Piper says people in heaven have no age. They are ageless. Colton Burpo, however, says that people in heaven appear to be in their late 20s. Jesse Duplantis went to heaven and he saw disembodied little baby spirits flying around the throne room of God. Mary Baxter, however, says that babies and children grow up and they even go to school in heaven. They attend classes in heaven. Jesse Duplantis says that Jesus spoke to him and of that verse in which Jesus said, I will wipe away every tear, Jesse Duplantis says those tears... Uh, are the tears of Christ. That's what Jesus told him. They are my own tears, said Jesus. But Mary Baxter, however, says those are the tears of people. Huh. Well, they can't all be right, can they? They contradict one another. They even contradict themselves. Watch this video clip of Colton Burpo. The little boy says he went to heaven. As he's being interviewed on Fox News by Megyn Kelly. This is April the 8th of 2014. Listen to this video as Megan Kelly asks Colton if he remembers his trip to heaven.
3: Colton, you're
1: 14 now. Do you still have a conscious memory of this experience?
4: Well, of my hospital stay and all the events leading up to it, um, that's a little foggy, but my experience in heaven is very vivid
0: okay so he doesn't remember much about the hospital that's understandable but he says his memories of heaven are still very vivid this was april the eighth of two thousand fourteen watch this video clip from just three weeks later april twenty ninth of the same year
5: do you remember those first visions that you saw of heaven
4: well i will have to say um, it my My thoughts of heaven aren't as crisp as they used to be. Um, It's been 10, 11 years since it's happened. So um, there's been a lot of time in between that. I mean, it's hard to remember what you did when you were four. Yeah. (laughs) So. um...
0: (laughs) Well, that's awkward. So April 8th, Colton says his memories of heaven are very vivid. But just three weeks later, it seems like his memory faded rather abruptly and his memories of heaven aren't as crisp as they used to be. He's lying. He's lying. Don Piper wrote this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Upon the impact in his car accident, Don Piper says he died, went to heaven, spent an hour and a half in heaven, and he saw a lot of people in heaven. He saw his old high school buddy who died at an early age. He saw Sunday school teachers. He saw his great-grandmother, Hattie. And he saw his grandfather, whom he describes as still having his, quote, big banana nose. So he saw a lot of people in heaven. But on page 33 of his book, he says, There's one person he did not see. I did not see God. I saw no luminous glow that might have indicated his divine presence. So of all the people that he saw in heaven, there's one person he's very clear about he did not see. He did not see God. This book was written in the year 2004. It seems as though his story has changed just a little bit because watch this video clip of Don Piper from seven years later.
3: Drinking that in and, and, and absorbing how great the mansions were, and then I began to look up through the gate, and I could see this kind of pinnacle in the middle of the city. It's kind of a hill high and lifted up. There's a river flowing down the side of this Well, it's the river of life, and it's coming down the side of this mountain or hill, if you will, and at the top of that is the brightest light I've ever seen, and I know who that is. It's the Lord, high and lifted up. This is his city.
0: Now, wait a minute. In his book, 2004, he said he did not see God. Not only did he not see God, did not even see a luminous glow that would have indicated where he was, but just seven years later, he says, I did see God. Way down there up on top of the hill. He said it was the brightest light I'd ever seen and I knew who that was. It was the Lord high and lifted up. Which is it? The title of your book is 90 Minutes in Heaven and you can't remember whether or not you saw God? That's a pretty big deal. You know, dear ones, I'll be the first to admit that I'm bad with names and faces. I am. I... I, I work on it. I just haven't found the, the knack to it. Sometimes I embarrass myself by not remembering people's names and every once in a while their faces. But you know what? As bad as I am at that, I would have to believe that if I had been granted the magnanimous privilege of going to heaven, there's probably one person whom I would never forget whether or not I met, and that would be God. He's a liar. He's a liar. You know what I think has happened? I think it's been a while since he's read his own book. I do. I think it's been a while since he's read his own book. And as as the years have gone on, he's gone more and more radio interviews, more and more television interviews, his stories have become more and more embellished. He's just forgotten what his own book is. And it's just snowballed. He's a liar. There are biblical problems with all of these accounts. They are incorrect or imprecise and they all add to Scripture. They all add to Scripture. I want to give you an example of how they add to Scripture. Colton Burpo, heaven is for real. Colton Burpo went to heaven and he reports, he gives us some new information about heaven that not found in Scripture. For example, Colton Burpo tells us that people in heaven have wings. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about people in heaven having wings. Colton Burpo also informs us in his book that Gabriel sits at the Father's left hand. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about Gabriel sitting at the Father's left hand. Colton Burpo also tells us that Jesus rides around in heaven on a multicolored horse. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus riding around on a multicolored horse. Also, Colton Burpo informs us that the Holy Spirit is blue. The Holy Spirit is blue. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Because the Bible doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit being blue. What is the Holy Spirit? A a smurf? (laughs) So he gives us all of this new information about heaven that is not recorded in the scriptures. Now, theoretically, theoretically speaking, if people in heaven really do have wings, if Gabriel really does sit at the Father's left hand, if Jesus really is riding around up there on a multicolored horse, and if the Holy Spirit really is blue, if that's really the way heaven is, if they are giving us accurate information about heaven, then you know what we ought to do? We ought to add that information to this book. Because theoretically, it, it should have the same... Authority. If that's really what heaven is like, then we should add that to this book. There's only one problem with that. This book says, do not add to this book. Do not add to this book. Scripture is very clear about this. There are no, numerous warnings about adding to Scripture. Uh, don't do it. Revelation chapter 22, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 30. Take your pick, it's in both the Old and New Testaments. Do not add to the Word of God. And yet that is what all of these accounts do. There are theological problems with these accounts. For one, they diminish God's self-sufficiency. Listen to this, or watch this from Benny Hinn.
5: I will never forget standing in a meeting worshiping the Lord and I felt a hand touch my arm and I looked and I said who touched me and there was some other young people with me in this service church service and said nobody touched you and I went back to worshiping God and In a few seconds there was the hand again and I turned and I said somebody touched me and they kind of looked at me it happened again, and the third time when I opened my eyes, they were all worshiping God with tears. Oh, it to be down their face, but I could still feel the hand. And I heard him speak to me and say, listen to this. The Lord said to me, I need you. Imagine God saying to you, I need you.
0: Imagine indeed. This from Jesse Duplantis.
6: Then I realized that God needs our love. I didn't realize how much he needed me. See, I've always thought of me needing him. You know, how much he needed me. I'll do anything for you. And he smiled at me. He said, I chose you. He said, no one else wanted you. But I need you, boy. I need you, Jesse. I said, okay. I'll tell every soul I meet that you're coming. He said, I brought you here for this.
0: So, Benny Hinn and Jesse Duplantis both say that God needs them. Dear friends, let me say this as clearly and yet as uh, gently, I suppose, as I know how to say it, God loves us, but make no mistake about it. God does not need us. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He spoke the universe into existence. He is completely and totally independent, satisfied, satisfied within himself. He has need of no one and no thing. God loves us, but he does not need us. We need him. And any man who would preach a message that says that God needs us is preaching a different gospel. Just kind of an observation. Look at the look on this lady's face. I don't know about you, but I don't think she's buying it either. Looks kind of dubious, doesn't she? watch this from Jesse Duplantis as bad as that was watch this
6: I walked in my study to pray as I normally do I have a habit of saying hello Jesus and he says hi Jesse it's a first name basis I walked into that study and something was wrong Pastor Osteen I sensed it and it wasn't with me Everything's going great. Everything was fine. So I began to pray like I normally prayed, and the Lord began to minister to me, and I ministered to Him. Finally, I said, something's wrong. Lord, something's wrong. And it's not with me. Then I realized, I said, Lord, somebody hurt you today. somebody hurt you today you're not acting like you normally act somebody hurt you today the spirit of the lord spoke to me said you know me don't you he said my children have disobeyed see we use the terminology we grieve the holy spirit so loosely you hurt him his capacity to hurt is greater than yours his capacity to love It's greater than yours. I said, somebody hurt you today, Lord. I said, listen, I'm going to cancel all my appointments today. I'm shutting it down. And I'm going to praise you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to rejoice and honor you and call your name Hosanna. I'm going to stay here for lack of a better word, God, to say till you feel better. And I stood in that study and I praised God and I shouted and I cried and I loved the Lord. And I said, come here, come here, let me hug you, come here. And I just loved you and honored him. And it was about an hour and a half. And I heard him go, thank you. You can go back to your appointments. You blessed me.
0: that that angers me that is shocking and that's why i say these people are not christians you cannot be you cannot be indwelt by the holy spirit of god and teach that kind of blasphemy 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 these are not christians and dear ones if you have a friend or if you have a family member who is following one of these false teachers, I beg you to beg them to come out of this movement. You've got to speak the truth to them. You've got to work under the assumption that your friend or your family member is lost. These are wolves. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They will not follow another. If somebody is truly a sheep, one of God's sheep, they're not going to follow these people for very long. They're not going to do it. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Colton Burpo, talking about his trip to heaven, I'm going to show you how it even diminishes the Trinity. Watch Watch this video clip from Colton Burpo as he's being interviewed by Sean Hannity on Fox News. Watch this
4: say that you met Jesus Christ and God can you describe God and Jesus Christ well Jesus is more like the humanoid version he's the one you can relate to because he loves you so much and he's actually your size so you can actually like walk with him and talk with him and you talk to him yes and he talked to you Mm -hmm. and what did he say now I can't remember what all we talked about, because a lot of it he even taught me. But God has not allowed me to remember what Jesus has taught me.
0: Now, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. So Colton Burpo went to heaven and talked with Jesus. Jesus talked to him, but when asked, what did Jesus say to you, Colton says, well, well, a lot of what Jesus said to me, he, he taught me, but God has not allowed me to remember what Jesus taught me. Does that make any sense? So now Colton Burpo, it's like he's pitted God the Father against God the Son. And it's almost like this. Colton Burpo, it's almost like Colton Burpo's, or God is saying to Colton Burpo, um, Colton, remember, remember a few years ago when you were up here in heaven, remember that? And you and Jesus were walking around and, and Jesus was talking to you. Remember that, Colton? Well, you know, Colton, sometimes Jesus gets a little carried away. You know, sometimes Jesus talks a little out of turn. He gets ahead of himself. And, you know, Colton, he, he told you some things that he really shouldn't have told you. So uh, I'm going to have to zap your memory now, Colton. I'll look into the flashy thingy. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. And people eat this stuff up. They eat this stuff up. Just yesterday, flying in on the airplane, or the day, day before yesterday, flying in on the airplane, uh, sitting next to a lady, and uh, she goes to a, a very large, not Lakewood, but a very large Baptist church here in Houston, second Baptist church, and she was talking about how she just loves these books, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and Heaven is for real. Something's wrong. You know what else is interesting about these books You can read these books cover to cover. Something very important is missing. You can read 90 Minutes in Heaven cover to cover, and I have. You can read Heaven is for Real cover to cover, and I have. And you know what you will not hear? You will not read the gospel. The gospel is not in there. So let me get this straight. You've been to heaven... And you've seen God, or, or maybe you didn't see God. I mean, who could remember such details? But you, you, know, you may or may not have seen God. And, you know, you can, us, you can tell us all about what your great-grandmother's smile looked like. You can tell us all about your grandfather's big banana nose. You can tell us all about Jesus helping you with your homework, as Colton says. I'm not real sure heaven would be heaven if you had to do homework in it. But you can tell us all of this nonsense But you don't put the gospel in there? You've been to heaven, but you don't bother to tell anybody how to get there? And by the way, the gospel is not in either one of the movies either. They made a full length motion picture Hollywood movie out of both of these accounts. The gospel is not in either one of them. I've been to both of the movies. If I had, and it would never happen, but if I had been granted the magnanimous privilege of going to heaven and had come back, dear friends, I would be so consumed with the holiness of God, with coming judgment, with the urgency of the gospel, I could do nothing but preach the gospel. And they don't even bother to put it in there. They hadn't been to heaven. They're liars. They're liars. And the lack of discernment among so many professing believers today is just astonishing. Just astonishing. The Apostle Paul speaks of a man who went to heaven, Second Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says, "...I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know, or out of the body I don't know, God knows." such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which man is not permitted to speak. The Apostle Paul was speaking of himself. And you may be wondering, well, why does he refer to himself in the third person? Why doesn't he use the first person like we would normally do? The reason Paul referred to himself in the third person is because that is how humbled by what... He was by what he had experienced. Paul would not even refer to himself in the first person to use the third. And Paul didn't even want to talk about this. But his apostolic authority was being questioned by some of the knuckleheads back in Corinth. You know, are you really an apostle? And Paul had just, he had, you can almost sense that he just had had enough. And he had been just about pushed to his limits. And he, fin- he finally said, okay, you question my apostolic authority, you question whether or not I'm an apostle, I know a man. I know a man. He didn't even want to talk about it in the first place. And notice, we have no idea what he saw. We have no idea what he heard. Why? He said he heard words that are inexpressible that man is not permitted to speak. Dear friends, this was the apostle Paul this was a man who wrote roughly, you know, a third to a half, depending on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews, a third to a half of the book of the, of, the, of the New Testament. And he was not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard in heaven. Dear ones, if the Apostle Paul was not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard in heaven, I seriously doubt that any other yahoo would be allowed to do so. Especially when they go on speaking tours. And they make careers out of their trip to heaven. There are only three men in the New Testament who are allowed a glimpse into heaven. Just three. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, right before he was stoned. The Apostle Paul. And then John, the Apostle John. But John was writing the book of Revelation. Inspired, authoritative scripture. That, so that's on a level all of, its, all of its own. Nobody else. You know, Lazarus, oh, Lazarus, he was dead for four days, Right? four days dead and he stinketh. Jesus raised him from the dead. I don't remember Lazarus writing a book about what he saw in heaven. He didn't go on any speaking tours, did he? But all these people do. It's hard to ignore the obvious, is it not? There's a lot of money to be made in going to heaven. 90 Minutes in Heaven is sold in excess of six million copies. In fact, now I think it's over eight million. Heaven is for real, well in excess of 10 million copies. That's just in English, and it's been translated into 20-some-odd different languages. And both of these books have now full-length motion pictures off of them. There's a lot of money to be made in going to heaven. Let's just say they get a dollar off each book. Let's say they get 50 cents. A lot of money to be made in going to heaven. This is Jesse Duplantis's parsonage. My wife and I drove past his parsonage uh, just a couple years ago, pulled over on the side of the road, took a picture of it. This is Jesse Duplantis's parsonage. This is where he lives, 35,000 square feet. Not 3,500, 35,000 square feet. A lot of money to be made in going to heaven. Pretty lucrative business. The last word that we will give on these heavenly tourists, uh, we'll give to Dr. Steve Lawson. Dr. Steve Lawson has not been to heaven, at least not yet anyway, but listen to this from Dr. Steve Lawson. John 1 verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. You know what that literally means? No one has seen God at any time. It means exactly what it says. It says what it means.
2: If you ever hear someone come up to you and say, hey, I've seen God, just write them off as a nut.
0: Divine revelation knowledge. All of the faith preachers claim that much of what they teach you they receive directly through divine revelation knowledge that Jesus himself Speaks to them, or God speaks to them, and and this is their way of insulating themselves against biblical criticism. If you can't find what I'm teaching in the scriptures, don't worry about it. It's okay. I have it from the highest authority. Jesus gave me these teachings. God spoke to me. This is what He had to say. This is what He had to say. I want to show you a, an example of this. Now, this is a bit of an extreme example, to be sure, but it makes a point. Jesse Duplantis, writing in his magazine Voice of the Covenant, he says the Lord showed him a new way to look at Matthew 17, verse 20. Now I have this word new highlighted for a reason. Dear friends, uh, or Matthew 17, verse 20 is talking about Jesus, uh, Jesus talking about having faith the size of a mustard seed. And if you're reading a passage of Scripture, and all of a sudden you think you have discovered a hidden meaning to that particular passage of Scripture that nobody else In the 2,000 year history of the Christian church, has ever seen before, except you? You're wrong. I don't mean it ugly, but you're wrong. If you think you have discovered a hidden meaning that has escaped the attention of every other believer, every other Holy Spirit indwelt believer, except you, you need to take another look at it. But Jesse said that's what happened to him. He, referring to God, showed me that most people preach on the properties of the seed. But the Lord gave him a deeper understanding on this verse when he told me, I put a dimension on the size of the mustard seed, but I did not put a dimension on the size of the mountain. I didn't understand, said Jesse. Look, God explained, I made sure you understood the the dimension of faith was small like a mustard seed, but I never set a limit on the size of the mountain. Why do you think I didn't set a limit on the size of the mountain but limited faith to the size of a grain of mustard seed? I still didn't have the answer. Here comes God's answer. Because if you use any more, you'd blow me off my throne. Dear friends, I would suggest to you that the only one who is going to be blown off of his throne is Jesse Duplantis by God. Who does he think he is? Now, a bit of an extreme example to be sure, but I want to show you another example of someone claiming that God speaks to them. This one flies in under the radar a lot more easily. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus Calling. The hottest selling devotional book on the market by far. It is light years ahead of anything else out there. This is no ordinary devotional book. Sarah Young read a book entitled God Calling. And I'll show you an excerpt out of the introduction of her own book. Word for word, straight out of the introduction of a book. Sarah Young says, During that same year, 92, I began reading God Calling, a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they received from him. God Calling is indeed a book. It was written in the early 1930s by two anonymous female mystics. We don't know the identities of these two women, but um, they wrote the book, 1930s, and they practiced waiting in the presence of God. And they, they practiced hearing the voice of God. And it's like one day they, just, they finally tuned in to just the right frequency and when they hit just the right frequency God started talking to them and they wrote down what he was saying. Sarah Young says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible but I yearned for more. You see the Bible just wasn't enough for Sarah Young. She had to have something else. And you know theoretically as theologically conservative evangelical Christians, theoretically, we have won the big wars over whether or not God's word is inerrant. At least theoretically, if you're going to be a theologically conservative evangelical and you're going to pastor one of these churches or you know, be anybody in the, you know, your convention or whatever, you're at least going to have to give lip service to the fact that you believe God's word is inerrant. But you know where the battle is really being fought today out in the trenches? Is God's word sufficient? Is God's Word sufficient? And you know what? We're losing that battle big time, big time. The Bible just wasn't enough for Sarah Young, and it's not enough for the vast majority of professing Christians. Sarah Young says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed He was saying. Houston, we have a problem. So just like the ladies who wrote God Calling, who tuned in to just the right frequency, one day Sarah Young Tuned in and she hit just the right frequency. And when she did, Jesus started calling Sarah Young. And she says, with pen in hand, she wrote down what he was saying. Dear friends, if that's really what's happening, if Jesus is really calling Sarah Young and she is writing down what he says, you know what she's doing? She's writing scripture. That's what she's doing. She's writing scripture. And when you read these devotionals, 365 devotionals, when you read them, they are written in the first person for Christ. I, Jesus, will do these things. I am such and such. Written in the first person for Jesus Christ. She's writing Scripture theoretically. Shocking lack of discernment amongst so many professing believers today. Beth Moore claims that God speaks to her. Watch this from Beth Moore.
1: What God began to say to me about five years ago, and I'm telling you it sent me on such a trek with him that my head is still whirling over it. He began to say to me, I'm going to tell you something right now, Beth. And boy, you write this one down. And you say it as often as I give you utterance to say it. My bride is paralyzed by unbelief. My bride is paralyzed by unbelief.
0: So if God really is speaking to Beth Moore and he is giving her these messages and he says, you write this one down, then Beth Moore is writing Scripture too. And all these people all over the place, and we hear it all the time, do we not? People say, well, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and he told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. Uh, Pastor, God spoke to me and He told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. A lot of people out there claiming that God speaks to them. Have you ever wondered, when you hear these things, have you ever wondered, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I don't hear God talk to me like that. Have you ever been there? You ever wondered, what's wrong with me? Are these people more spiritual than I am? Do they have a closer walk with God than I do? I, you know, I, don't, I don't hear God talk to me so clearly. Dear friends, if God is speaking to people in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture, then whatever He says should be just as authoritative as John 3.16 because God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than He does on another. If God is speaking, God is speaking. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it, but when He speaks to us today outside of the Bible, you know, in some still small voice, He still means it but He doesn't mean it quite as much as He meant it here. How does that work? If God is speaking, God is speaking. He cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. All these people talking about how God speaks to them. God speaks to them. How does God speak to us? Well, let's go to the text. Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. The writer of Hebrews says this, "'God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways,' in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in the Old Testament, long ago, God spoke in a lot of different ways. Indeed, he did. God spoke to Moses up on the mountain through a storm and thunder. God spoke to Elijah through a still, small voice. In Numbers chapter 22, God even made a donkey talk. So God did indeed speak in many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, notice the contrast, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, He has said in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all sufficient record of that in his word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to leave here today and think, oh, Justin told us that God doesn't speak to us today. Uh, That's not at all what I'm saying. God does speak to us today, right here. This is how God speaks to us. Now, can God give us direction Yes. You hear people say sometimes, well, God gave me a burden for this or that. God gave me a burden for this person. God laid you on my heart. Can God do these things? Of course he can. Of course he can. You know, can God bring people to our remembrance? Sure. Can God give us a burden for somebody to use that kind of language? Sure, he can, but there is a sense in which we are to bear one another's burden, so we should be doing that anyway. But could, you know, can God? Lay somebody on our heart, to use that terminology, sure. But what I am saying is when people say, God spoke to me and he said, quote, da-da-da-da-da, you've entered some very deep waters. Because if God is speaking in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture, then we've got an open canon of Scripture. Whatever God says, we should add to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says, do not add to this book. Dear friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there is one way I can guarantee you, you will hear God speak. 100% no questions asked. If you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. I promise you, you will hear Him speak. Oh, but how do I know God's will for my life? That's always the question. If God doesn't speak to us, outside of scripture how do i know god's will for my life how do i know where to go to college how do i know what job to take how do i know who to marry how do i know where to live how do i know what house to buy or, you know you know all these questions how do i know and and people are so many people are are in fear that if they if they choose one thing over the other and if they choose the wrong way if they miss god's will because they didn't hear the the voice right you know they'll they'll uh, if they Choose this and not that, then then their life will just fall apart like a row of dominoes. Oh, I can't choose the wrong one. Dear friends, relax. Relax. God directs our paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Not He might direct them. Not He will direct them if He doesn't have anything better to do. He will direct your paths. How does God do that? I don't have the slightest idea. I just know He does. He spoke the universe into existence. I think He can direct our paths. You know, Will God give people wisdom? Of course. James says that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him pray to God. Pray for wisdom. Go to some godly people you know. The Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. Men, go to some godly men you know. If you have some dilemma facing you and you're not sure what to do, go, go to some godly men you know and, and seek their counsel. I do that. So uh, these, are all, these are all means which God has provided to, to give us wisdom and direction. So yes, God will direct our paths. He will do that. And so if you want to know God's will for your life, here's how you know God's will for your life. Read, study, and obey the Word of God. And if you're not doing that, then nothing else matters anyway. Read, study, and obey God's Word. Pray for wisdom. Seek some godly counsel. If you need some godly counsel, do that. And trust God to direct your paths. He will do it. He spoke the universe into existence. He will direct your paths. Please don't think that there's something wrong with you if you don't hear some still, small voice inside your head. That's not how God speaks to us, dear ones. God speaks to us through His Word. This quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, "'I have little confidence in those persons "'who speak of having direct revelations from the Lord, "'as though He appeared otherwise than by and through the gospel.' His word is so full, so perfect, that for God to make any fresh revelation to you or me is quite needless. To do so would be to put a dishonor upon the perfection of that word. Indeed. Indeed. Dear, word, dear ones, God's word is sufficient. His word is sufficient. That's what I want you to take away from this session. God's word is sufficient. How firm a foundation Ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith, in what? In his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What more can he say to us, dear ones, than what he has already said in his word?